G'day everyone, it's James Davis from the Paxate Academy again, and this time I've got Maria from 2pm. Thanks for joining me, Maria. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we dive in, where are you located in this big world? Well, I am located in Hobart, Tasmania, but if you can pick up by my different accent, I'm not from here. So I'm originally from Brazil, but I've moved to Australia in 2016. Oh, that's awesome. I was not going to pick Brazil, so <laughs> I'm glad you, didn't make me, glad you didn't make me guess. Um, <laughs> that's all right. But you're my first Brazilian on the podcast, so this is exciting for me. Um, there you go. <laughs> and it's also exciting that someone else is down here in tropical Hobart as well, so <laughs> this will be a great session. Well, why I've got you on this on, on for this episode is I sat in on a presentation that you did at an IT conference and you were talking about um, human-centered thinking. And uh -huh. I got really inspired by it. I learned a lot of concepts and you, you, you were very uh, engaging. And so I thought I'd get you on and talk about this um, concept. And I think the best place to start is what is human-centered thinking? Um, that's a good question. And I mean, if you, if you Google online, there's several different versions of it, but the idea is that it's a group of practices or it's a way about going, how you solve things that it's at the core, you put the human that you're solving for at the center. So the idea is that of every point in time that you're trying to solve a problem from identifying what the problem is to developing a solution to testing to designing what that looks like in releasing, you're always constantly interacting with the people that you're solving for and not just what kind of been used or done in the past where you solve the problem, you take a long time to build a solution and then you just release it without engaging with people. So that's sort of the essence of it, that it's more frequency designing and doing things for who you're designing or doing it for. It sounds like common sense stuff, really, that we should be thinking about people when we're dealing with technology, especially, but we, we often don't. And why, why do you think that is? Why does that happen? I have, um, a few assumptions and I like to say assumptions and I'll tell you in a second to why, but, um, using the presentation, you know what I'm talking about, but there's a lot of different situations require different things. So if you think about a startup owner that is developing a technology, a lot of the times it's very personal. So people tend to attach themselves a lot to what they're creating and the idea of engaging with external people to ask for feedback or to co-design can feel a bit risky or make them feel vulnerable. Like you're going to criticize my technology. You're going to ask me to change it. And I sort of know what I want and what it is. So there's that level of, I just sort of want to protect my idea the way that it is because it's mine and, and then it's natural, you know, like it, it's natural. You tend to like, you have your own idea and then you only share it with people that you love sort of expecting something like of a positive return, but the idea of putting yourself out there and actually engaging with people co-designing comes with a sense of you might not be a hundred percent right. So there's that resistance first, or a lot of the times what I've heard people that I've coached say is they just. They don't have the full context. Like I can't really ask for their opinion because they don't really know what I'm doing. I get a lot from researchers at university. People don't really understand my technology. It's just that they don't know and I do. Um, and it sort of can come from that or, you know, the way that we taught at universities, it's sort of, is still a lot. That idea of you build the business case and you 
put the money and then you build and then and then you release because you don't want to kind of show that you're doing a draft or something you always have to show it perfectly it's it's a combination of a few things but that's sort of what i see that in the past happened like well for the product or that idea that people just don't understand what i'm doing and i know and they will understand once i put it out in the market or just we've been taught the different way you know the the mentality that come out of university is not it's not pushing that or it's just startup-y not much corporate or business to be used it make, makes sense i see in our part of the industry that well, we're the experts we were hired in to do our services and it's all smoke and mirrors and we we do what we do and uh, the front line people won't understand but what happens what happens from that sort of mindset of uh, waiting too long till you bring humans into your thinking and the problem solving? There's a few things. So there's a statistic that I used, like that I presented at the beginning of things, especially when I'm talking to startups and researchers going, what do you think is the number one cause of people or products failing? And everyone goes, oh, lack of money, or you don't have the right team or the CEO. It's basically people don't want what you're providing. It's just people don't buy. There's not enough customers. And just that mentality of maybe what you're doing is not good stuff just doesn't exist. Like people just don't stop to think about that. Maybe what I'm providing people don't want, but that's the number one thing. Also, if people don't kind of engage, it's just the amount of money or it's just like you've seen technologies nowadays that they get released and everyone's like, why would they do that? It's just, I can just, I don't know send an email. Why do I need an app to blah, blah. It just seemed like too, too much. We've seen this, like there's too much overkill. Why would I do that? So there's too much money sometimes that gets involved in the small incremental beneficial things that the technology can provide that doesn't really delivers the value of kind of, um, what you're trying to achieve. So it's sort of, you know, you, people just don't buy what you want. Um, you spend too much money on it. There's a few more things, but I sort of forgot the question now. <laughs> I ask, I ask difficult and vague questions. It's, <laughs> that's okay. It's okay. So knowing that that's the implications that we either spend too much money, people don't even want what we're delivering, okay. or we completely miss the solution because we haven't understood the perspective of, well, maybe they, uh, the accountant is doing it this way because they need to do it because of the regulations and we never thought to ask. Yeah. How, how do we start embedding that sort of human-centered thinking into either developing a product or developing a solution, people, even if you're not selling it, getting people to adopt something yeah. is a challenge. It is. And there's a few things. First of all, if you're the person who wants to implement Number one is that you need to be open to wanting or recognizing that the current way is not fully functioning the way that um, you needed to do. Um, there are plenty of times where I could see that the process that this person of this company was doing was not working and the solution was not going to work, but they didn't see that. So yeah. whatever I recommended, it was sort of, it never landed because that person didn't recognize the gap or the need to. So the first thing is that if you look and you recognize that there is a gap, it's already a good first step to think about something different. The second thing is if you are able to, before thinking about what you're going to solve, think about 
what is the problem. So let's say uh, people are using notepads and kind of sending notes instead of sending emails. And you're like, okay, so I'm going to create a digitization of the notepad. But I would stop at that point and say, why people are not using the email? Like before you start thinking, ask yourself why people are doing that way. And it's not because whatever reason you might think, or people don't hate technology, or they just stubborn, or they just want to do that way. Come from a empathy side of maybe they have a reason to do it. Maybe they do it because it makes them feel better, or for regulations, or for other things that we might not be aware of. But everyone sort of have a justification to why. And once we understand that, then we can go, oh. Okay, yeah, 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 I can see your point. I can see why you write on a notepad. Maybe then we can do this way and the person will be like, oh, great. That makes me feel comfortable, addresses the needs that I need, and then i would happy to drop the notepad. So that idea of before we jump straight into like ideating what the solution could be, really have that pause of someone in the room going, wait, wait, wait. But is that really a problem or why is it that they do it this way? Having that curiosity to really understand why people do their behaviors in a certain way and that everyone has a reason to it. It's not because people are mean or just stubborn or just don't want to use the technology. People have a genuine reason why they do things the way that they do. And, you know, the best way to solve the problem is addressing those anxieties that drive people to make decisions to not use a technology, for example. So that's sort of the big two first steps that I really recommend that are very low touch, but can really transform, like they're very cheap because it's just thinking process, but can really transform the risk your delivery of your solution that actually gets implemented. So I think there are techniques, but these are sort of the two high level things that I really recommend. So when you are trying to discover that initial motivation and understand the what the root, root problems actually are, how do you, how would you recommend going through that? Cause I know from my experience, I, I've seen people where they don't even know that they've got a problem. So how yeah. can you solve the, something that they don't know that's even a problem in the first place? And that's a, that's a great question because uh, on the presentation that you were, I joke that you, we can't just go to people and say, I know that, you know, you told me this, but what is actually the problem? Are you feeling anxious? What is it like? Are you nervous that this is happening in your house? Like people really can't articulate those things. Um, I said like humans have a terrible, terrible biology in regards to understanding their own feelings and then like rationally uh, connecting their feelings to their behaviors and motivations. You know, sometimes people will ask you, why did you do that? And you're sort of, I don't know. I just felt it at the time, but there was probably something like you were anxious or you were trying to, you know, avoid being seen a certain way, but that's all subconscious. And then that's the information that we're trying to extract. Um, so asking them directly, it's really not going to give you the answer. People are either going to say what they think you want to hear, or it's just going to be a very vague, like, I don't know. I, I, I do it because I like it, I guess. Um, so <laughs> it's really not the right way, just asking bluntly the question. Um, and then there's a, there's a few things that you can do. Um, there's a triangle that I, uh, at the presentation, I presented one thing, which is having a conversation. But instead of asking questions, which I call intent-based questions, like why would you do this? Or 
what do you want and how do you want this to be solved and would you like this to be done so then you feel this way intent-based questions only give you promises we kind of we, we sort of say that we do things but when you actually look at the pattern and people don't do things and i joke about the gym you know you say oh what, how frequently do you go to the gym and the person says three times a week and then you're like uh-huh last week and they're like two and the week before one so really, people kind of communicate their intentions, but behavior, sometimes they don't realize it's very different. So when you have a conversation with someone, you should really start looking at behaviors. So like what they've done in the past, that would start showing you a lot more why people make decisions the way that they do, having the context of what happened, when did that happen, um, and then going like at a specific point in time. And then you can say, why did you do that at that time? with that context and it's easier for the person to actually tell you what happened instead of oh I think I do this because of that intent-based questions that's one of the key things that I keep telling people is that if you go and talk to people don't ask them what they want ask them what they did and the context and why and it was that the same every time and sort of start looking for behaviors which is what I call evidence instead of intentions which is promises kind of kind of thing I I think that's some very good insight. I think everyone would be getting that light bulb moment there of going, yeah, we all do that. It's, it is human nature. Um, yeah. It, asking those questions is one of the most most difficult things. What what apart from no, building up a toolbox and a toolkit of types of questions to ask and like, trying to get the answers that we we actually are seeking. How do we how do we set it up so we can properly facilitate that sort of thing? Is it as easy as just rocking up and having a conversation, or what? Do, whatever you it say is successful. Um, it can be. Uh, the key thing that you have to keep in mind if you are thinking about doing these conversations where you want to extract behaviors is people only share things if they're comfortable with you. So the first thing that I say to the teams that are going through you know, this training process kind of, if they want to, is get out of, get out of their work zone, put them in a comfort zone, like a neutral space where they feel like they can share openly how they feel. Um, so if it is a client that you are interviewing, take them to a cafe, pay for a coffee and very much say, I'm not here to sell you my solution. I just genuinely want to understand what's going on so then I can think about how can I create something for you that actually suits your needs so the idea of removing them from an environment where kind of makes people more uh, not serious but uh, the word escaping me that's why I said I'm from Brazil because English sometimes fails me <laughs> but <laughs> um kind of in a sense of I'll tell you what I think you want to hear because this is very formal you put them in a cafe or a restaurant or just a very informal situation where you're like I'm not here to sell I'm just here to understand and have a genuine conversation with you there's no right or wrong answers I'm not there's no obligations of contracts here's a coffee let's just have a chat that will open the door for the person to be really open to share what happened and how they're feeling number two is what I said before do not sell. Do not even mention that you have a solution in mind. Like you're there to figure it out about the problem. The moment that they realize that they're trying to sell you something, 
either they'll keep saying things to make you go away because they're not interested or they will start answering what they think you want to hear to not hurt your feelings or to make sure that you feel like your technology is relevant you know i think we all kind of face this of like hey you know i have this incredible pen and the person just gives it like a clicky smile and they're like great hell yeah your pen sounds great and then in reality they're just like your pen is terrible but they'll never tell you because they don't want to hurt your feelings so that idea of not even mentioning that you have something to sell or to offer it's really important because then people are truly open and honest that there's no way that they're going to hurt your feeling because you have nothing ready yet and that's really important it's a big distinction because we're not used to that we're used to going i have this amazing technology i want to make sure that it suits you this is what it does is that what you need and it's just again intent-based questions people will not tell you what you want to hear because they don't want to hurt your feelings and then you get all this information which it's not that it's a lie it's just it was not captured in the right way or we didn't ask the right questions and then you invest some millions of dollars and you launch and they don't buy and you're like why didn't they tell me maybe because we were asking the right quest the wrong questions at the wrong scenario at the wrong situation so these are the key two things that you can do to sort of beyond asking questions in the past take them out of their environment make them very casual and don't even mention your solution it's really really important how um how successful is it doing this in a in a group in a more scaled um approach because obviously that's very one-to-one very intimate is it as successful trying to do this on a large scale it can be if the group of people it's very trusting among them so for example if you would if you're going to get some a group of people that some sort of hierarchy amongst them so a manager with the staff probably not there's always even though you're taking them out and you're taking them off site and you tell at the start of the engagement hey there's no hierarchy here you know you just have to be open arms ultimately there is and that they will be the staff will be looking after themselves and not being openly honest. So you sort of have to again, this is human centered thinking. I'm putting myself in the shoes of the staff and in thinking, am I really creating a space that they can be truly and open and honest, or I'm not fulfilling what they really want to do, which is you know having the manager there might risk them, so I'm not going to share what I really think. That's what it sort of you have to start thinking when you engage with them. It's not just putting them in a room. Is like, will they really share? Maybe putting the manager there is not a good idea. Maybe let's put everyone together and then they're friends and then now they feel like they can share. You have to think about all these things. Usually we recommend a one-on-one because, you know, that's kind of not a guarantee, but a better chance for them to be truly open and kind of share everything with you. Um, but if you're not able to, just put yourselves into the shoes of the group that you're putting through and it will there be any barriers or think about how they would feel sharing those things so openly with the other people in the room and think about if it makes sense for them um, rather than just assuming they're just putting people together it's, it's just short, shortcutting the process of doing one-on-one does that make sense it, it does and all I'm taking out of this conversation so far is people are very difficult creatures that can't you just roll out some technology and it'll solve all the world's problems uh, and this is this is that sort of human-centered thinking is a lot of what we do in the technology space mm-hmm. is very is often very logical and rational mm-hmm. and 
people aren't very rational beings or they're rational from their perspective, not, not from our perspective. And so we, we've had these conversations and we're starting to like build an understanding of what the problem is. What, what's often the next step from when we continue our um, human centered thinking. So after you sort of identify, so assuming that, you know, I, I must say it's practice. So identifying the problem takes practice. And if you go to talk to people, I, we usually recommend like minimum 50. That's when you start getting patterns of what people are saying. If you can and have 50, don't, don't think just talking to one and two is enough. It's sort of, you know, again, there's our own bias of who do we want to talk to that will bring forth our own ideas. So be open to talking to a lot of people um, to be able to get that pattern of what sort of, what's the better problem to solve. But once you identify that, then the, usually the recommendation is to start ideating what's the, what's the solution, what the solution could be. Um, and again, the idea is that you do that and then you test with the users. So sort of testing the users, like the people that you, when you engage and say, Hey, I'm going to try to solve this. Would you like to be con continue to be engaged with this? Then you start to identify people that really want the problem solved. If they say, yes, keep me in the loop. Maybe these are the people that are really needing your technology and they should be your first adopters. And then you want to keep them close, right? Cause they are already that interest. So you start ideating and you say, I came up with these solutions. You can start creating small tests MVPs. There's a few tests. There's a test book that I have somewhere that talk about testing business ideas. You can do AB testing. You can do fake found, uh, found raising kind of for technology fundraising. I don't think that's the word, but you, you know, when you probably put some money to something so they can create something, um, and you can do some testing to see if that sticks with the audience. Once you sort of have an idea of between your solution options, which one has best resonated with your audience, which now you've kind of reduced because you figured out people that actually have the problem and want to keep engaging with you, then you can start building prototypes and thinking about not only how it functionally has to solve, but what it should look like. And that's the whole UX, UI design that a lot of people use human-centered design for, but I feel like just using it at that point might be a bit too late because you're just trying to make a technology that's not solving anything look good and easy to use. <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of the idea of ideate, <laughs> test your ideas with some testing techniques, A-B testing on an email, um, crowdsourcing or crowdfunding. There's plenty of things, L fake landing pages. There's plenty of techniques. Once you kind of have some that is shooting out more than others, then you start prototyping. And again, each prototype you pass through your customers that engage with you and want to keep being engaged and you release minimal viable products. And then you're like, okay, now I can invest a lot of money making this look really good because I've already have some people using the really crappy version. Now I can spend money doing something that it's really good. Now I've sold it because Clearly I have a fantastic idea and everyone loves it and yeah. I've gone through that process. Does it stop there? How, how do you engage in wider human centric thinking around like adoption? Like you've, we've just spoken to 50 people in the initial round as an example. 
does the process ever stop or do we just keep going deeper and deeper? You can, it just depends. And that's going to go up probably a bit more philosophical. That idea of when is enough is enough for your company. Is it one product enough? Do you want to be like Amazon that, you know, does from web services to book deliveries, and then you can start spinning out other types of solutions fit or are different or can be built on the backbone of other things. So you try to find a problem to the solution and you come from a sol problem to a solution space. That's always, this is something worth talking about. It's just as valid if you don't, if you've identified a problem and you don't have a solution. So you go problem to solution as much as you have a solution and you're like, maybe I should try to find a problem for that solution. And I think is X but I really want to test if it's X and I can give you an example. So there was a group of researchers that developed um, solar panel that was a film. So it's literally like a paper and they thought that buildings that have weird architecture would really love that film solar panel. Uh, and they went and engaged with these architecture firms and these building firms and they're like, no, this doesn't comply. It's really hard. Transportation, the trainees don't know how to install it. We're going to have to redo train. Like they just presented so many things that the team did not consider. But they're like, oh, but I thought it will make it easier to kind of get solar everywhere instead of just in the roof. And they're like, yes, but all of these things. Then they were like, okay, what other places they stopped and trying to put themselves into the shoes of different situations or different people. And they realized that people camping might have a bigger need for that than others. So they decided to explore that area just out of curiosity and went and talk to companies that do camping stuff. And the feedback was incredible. They're like, if I can create a tent that has a solar panel in, in, in the fabric that's bendable, it doesn't break, that will make like my product so different that will, you know, I can adjust to that. So that idea of I have a solution and it's sort of not sticking with the people that I think I saw for, there is still an opportunity for you to pause and explore different areas. And certainly there is someone out there that needs your solution that you might not think of. That was one example that was really true. And then they started talking to more and more people in the area and found other applications where that solar panel film was created for so it's just as valid as you don't have a solution and you want to explore the problem that you sort of think exists as well as I have a solution not really sold that the people that I solved or really wanted or it's not getting traction as as I expected to do you know I asked for intentions and now they're not delivering all the promises it's just as valid to pause and do some exploration work where who else might have a problem that ultimately your solution is offering which in that case was flexible solar panels that's that's a very interesting pivot of perspective and using the word assumptions again. How do how do you break your own assumptions to start looking at that problem in in a different way before you know who to go to who to go talk to? It's a it's it's a, it's it's an exercise <laughs> because so I like to joke that it's a it's a four by four kind of thing where there's assumptions that. I know that I have, um, which is sort of the things they say, I don't know this, I'm taking a stab or things that we recognize that we don't know. And there's assumptions that we don't even realize that we're making and, and they can be critical. Um, so such as when I send, um, an email in English 
to a bunch of people, I'm assuming that everyone understands English at the level that I'm writing or, you know, when you create something. So there's some assumptions that we take and we don't even realize that we're taking. So it's it's a constant exercise, but my, my suggestions whenever I, I bring on clients and teams to do it, it's like sit down with the core people that build this with you in a room, book out half a day, don't have any computers, don't have anything, and get post-its and start going. For our solution to survive and to be true, for people to want it, what has to be true? And really start working on the whys. Why is that? Oh, people will really have to use solar panel. Ah, there will be net to be a regulation. So when you're in that environment, you will start like feeding on each other's questions, but literally, literally like put your group together Again, no hierarchy, communicate that. No computers, don't focus solely on mapping assumptions and asking questions like, for us to be successful, what has to be true? And for this to survive or for people to use this, what has to be true? Thinking more about desirability, will people want this and this is what needs to happen in people's lives for them to want this rather than feasibility and viability, which is usually where we focus our attention to which is, can we do this? And is this even viable money-wise? These, these assumptions are easy to answer. You're already thinking of them. I want to push people to think about desirability. For people to want this, what has to be true in their life? What problem do they need to have? So people, okay, okay, I'm gonna, you know, buy this magazine that's behind me. What has to be in my life? And then you go and talk to these people and say, try to test that assumption asking for behaviors so when was the last time that you bought a magazine why did that happen and then you start testing those assumptions those desirability assumptions through the conversations looking for behaviors and then you start seeing is my assumption true actually people buy magazines because i don't know they're bored at a airport not because they're seeking knowledge you know what i mean so that's sort of how I see it. Hopefully I answer your question right. I keep rubbing as well. No, this is, this is fantastic. That insight into setting out what needs to be true for X, Y, Z um, to, to be desirable is an excellent insight. And I think what I took about out of it as well is a lot of these exercises go better when you've got an external person facilitating. I know we're both biased because we do this sort of stuff for a living, but... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, in my experience, when we are looking yeah. at these sort of new things or getting information out of our, our brains, oh, it does require someone else to be a neutral party, to right. ask the right questions, to to prompt the right things. And that's how we get all that knowledge out. And that circles right back to right. the start where you oh. were talking about setting up the the, the scene on asking, asking people the behavioural trait questions yeah rather than the intent because often when we're in our own organizations we default to intent yeah reinforcing our own things and and often like if we've all all been in the same organization we've been doing the same thing for for a long time our assumption bases are are pretty shallow at, at that point we're not we may not be able to look outside ourselves very well without bias, all, all of those kinds of things. So I think that that was an excellent point. Um, you've yeah. got my brain spinning around at the moment of how oh, I good. can help people. 
But you you mentioned something really interesting. Is that you? Right. If you bring your 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 whole team, it's very likely that you will reinforce your own behavior, like your own pattern of yeah, we did this great, and it, you know that's the assumption and so forth. You don't necessarily have to have a facilitator. There's some books about you know that I can recommend from Strategizer that have activities and walk you like <laughs> with questions and walk you through almost like a, a workshop what to do. But bringing people from your business from other teams or, you know, I've heard about, you know, I, I read a lot um, about cases and things like that. There was one case where this this group of executives was trying to solve something and they really struggled. And then by chance, one of their secretaries and PAs heard it and then gave her two cents on it. And she understood more than all of them what was happening because she could see it from the outside. And she gave her perspective that she, you know, they couldn't see because they were living in it. So that idea of maybe engaging with a, what I call cross-functional teams in your business. So, you know, getting someone from marketing, getting someone from R&D, getting someone from finance, getting someone from, you know, uh, the engineering team and putting all of them in the room. Everyone will be looking at your solution through a different lens. It might be pushing for different things to be true for that to be successful. And the idea is that once you have those things mapped, you start to have a conversation with your customers and start seeing what things are a priority, what things are true, what things are not. Um, so you actually brought up a really good thing that I forgot, which is the idea of working cross-functional teams. So you reduce the confirmation bias, even though it's in your own company, um, because I find it really hard if, you know, it's, it's expensive hiring a consultant or a contractor to do that work for you. And I don't expect everyone who have either the appetite or the budget to do it, but even doing cross-functional teams in your own business might unlock or reduce a little bit of that bias that we have in regards to our own assumptions. And then to extend on this as well, like we've got a lot of clients ourselves and we're looking at modern problems and we need to have modern solutions like AI is coming, cybersecurity is a challenge. I'm hoping people are listening to this and going, well, maybe this is a method that can elevate me from the person that was fixing the broken computers to a technology advisor and using some of these techniques to come in and facilitate these conversations to understand and identify what are the real problems inside the business and what opportunities are there to leverage technology to solve some of them. Yeah, that, absolutely. There's a lot of power power in that um, being able to shine the light on the problems you don't necessarily have to have the solutions like you've mentioned before but that empowerment of under, understanding the problems that you've got and that clarity it can give an organization is immense and my brain is just going like a million miles an hour because this stuff really excites me if we if we extend out from that sort of our own team and, and breaking our breaking our own assumptions. Do you, do you have another real world sort of scenario? You mentioned the whole um, the example of the solar panel, the flexible solar panels. Do you have any other real life examples that sort of really resonate and hit home of where people were going the wrong direction until they utilize something like the human-centered um, thinking that we've been talking about today? Yeah, sure. Um, I can give my real life experience <laughs> just to show that I'm not just talking smack that I never done. <laughs> <laughs> but 
my background is in agriculture and in back in 2017, I had a meeting with a big potato producer here in Tasmania and they was complaining to me going, you know, every time we contract farmers, the same farmers every year, the same locations that we've assessed before should be great for potato growing. And yet the Brook DV keeps dropping. Like what is, what is going on? Can you help us solve the problem? And me being very naive in 2017, just went jumped straight into solution and designed this app that would combine a few things from the Tasmanian government, geospace and modeling. Oh, gosh, I went over and board on it, but it was sort of an app that they would look at the state of Tasmania and then with information from the government that's publicly available in regards to soil type and things, they could see new areas where growing potato would be good. So then know their field officers could go and try to contact these farmers and assess their land in person i came back to and they're like okay not knowing any better they're like that's great you know i was talking to the manager and he's like that's great i love it the thing and then i had decided to apply to a uh, accelerator program um because that was a technology from the university i went through this program and then they did exactly the same thing Right, your assumptions, what's your problem statement, who is your customer, who are the people involved and we mapped all these things and they're like, you have to talk to 100 people by the end of 12 weeks. And then we set out to talk to 100 people. We talk, we talk, talk, what we realize is field officers at the time were really comfortable just contracting who they knew. They really were not incentivized to find new farmers and it was really, they were, like they will really be like, yeah, that that's great, but I'm still going to contract the same person. And what they did was they just increased the amount that the farmer had to deliver in terms of tons. And it was the farmer's responsibility to subcontract their neighbors to grow potatoes for them. So the quality was, they weren't controlling who else was growing the potatoes. Hence why that's why the productivity was dropping. And when we talked to farmers, new ones that just bought water at the time, they were like, well, we can't really contract, contact them. Like you only get a contract if you are known to the field officers. So I can't breach through. So in regards to the company, they weren't like, they were just not reinforcing the behavior from the field officers to finding the better places. They just like the same people and they figure it out how they grow the amount that I want. And the farmers that really want to get contracted and have like virgin soils, which for agriculture is incredible if you never grew the crop that you want, um, they couldn't contract the people because they were not on the list and they were not known and things like that. So what we pivoted <laughs> was we created or, you know, we try to create and then like, and then many, many things happened, but was a matching, it's almost like Tinder for farming and contractors where the farmer would publish their paddock, which is this piece of land saying, I have this, this is what I grew, you know, this is an internet. And then the contractor would see sort of a marketplace and then match those two things together. And they, they would directly, almost like a marketplace for paddocks. Instead of just, who do you know? There was a competitiveness of, you have to have good land. You have to treat your things right. So quality would increase because that's competition. And for farmers, they will be able to negotiate better prices because then their paddock's better than the other people. So it's sort of, you know, once we explore the problem, we realize that, you know, the solution that shows 
incredible things was not the right solution. It was actually to farmers to engage with the contractors in a way that it will be beneficial for both, not just providing information, if that makes sense. It, it does. And I, I think it's a prime example of um, spending more time and actually going and talking to more people in the chain. Uh, and yep. if I turn this into a practical little um, thought process for the, the viewers and listeners, this is like if you only talk to the practice manager, you only talk to the operations manager, you only talk to the IT manager, and that's the only person you're talking to, you're only going to get the same answers. It's not... That's it's, right. Unless you go and talk to multiple people in the organization, you're not necessarily going to solve the right problems or you'll keep having the same results that, that what you've had in the past. And so I, I think this thought process will, will help a lot of people. And I know I, I'd love to keep talking about this to you all day, but we're, co okay. we're coming up to time. So we've covered a lot of concepts um, today. What do you want people to really... You know, one or two things that they should really take away from, from today. And what's a clear next action that if they're not already doing this, where, where do they start and what do they do? I think the biggest takeaway that I've been preaching for years, and thank you for giving your platform for me to continue preaching to a wider audience, is um, I want people to love the problem before they love the solution. So practicing every day, even at home or whatever you're trying to solve, pausing and saying, is that really the problem? Is that really why I'm doing this or the customer or the person is doing that? Like maybe I should ask a few things before I try to jump straight into solving this. Maybe it's not even worth solving or maybe there's a different thing that I can do. So again, one day I'm going to make t-shirts out of this and I'll send you one is I love the problem. So I really want you to sort of really try to catch yourself going straight into solution taking a pause and trying to ask some questions to clarify the problem. That's the, the, the thing that you can do right now after you stop li listening and watching this that can really change the way that you approach things. And things that you can do is that there's plenty of books out there that explore this and there's plenty of content online. So there's courses and stuff. I've learned this by doing it, but one thing that you can do for free is actually because this is a lot, very well embedded in startups, go look at your local enterprise startup accelerator program. Go into their free events, go network with people that are talking and breathing and living this because you need to surround yourself with people that are thinking the same. If you don't, you you it's it's normal to default into what everyone is doing. So a very simple and easy way, start, start listening to podcasts that talk about this. Look for networking events for your local startup community or go look at your local government enterprise accelerator programs. Every state, every council sort of have one. If you do that, you start discussing and seeing real life application of things that will really sort of give you some examples of real life things that they've done that can kind of start helping you reprime your brain of how to think and you know again surround yourself with people that think the same way otherwise it's very easy to go back to the fault that's some awesome advice and i think i've taken away from this session that you're not going to automate people away and people are the center of all the problems so that's right we're better off embracing it than than um, trying to ignore it and work our way around it so 
Thank you so much for joining me, Maria. Hopefully people have learned a lot out of this session and, and, and start extending that out into their business and their life. And hopefully in the future, I'll get you back on again and we'll, we'll go a bit deeper. Oh, I would love to. I'm just a call away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.